Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. In this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Eckhart Fromm. Eckhart is the professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University. His main interests are in Assyrian and Babylonian history in Mesopotamia at large during the first millennium. Uh, He is the author of many articles and many books, including the most recent, Assyria, the Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire, which is what we talk about in this conversation. We begin the conversation by talking about uh, an overview of some of the various uh, Assyrian periods. We talk about what makes northern Iraq and Mesopotamia this type of fertile ground for for being a hotbed for so many different people groups and cultures throughout society or civilizations past. We talk about the impact of language on Assyria, the importance of Asher as a god and as a city. We talk about the beginning of rulers in old Assyrian period, the middle Assyrian period, major rulers in Assyria, distinctions between Assyria and Babylon. We talk about the fall of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Uh, We talk about how the Assyrian Empire works within the biblical accounts of Assyria. Uh, and the second destruction of Assyrian artifacts by ISIS, which happened a few years ago. As I mentioned in the conversation a few times, uh, I have a little bit of uh, some uh, touching points with uh, uh, Assyria and, and Mesopotamian culture and my own um, you know, training and education. So, you know, it was just such a treat for me to, to talk to such an expert um, in the Assyrian uh, culture and civilization. Um, I hadn't thought about this stuff in a while, and it was it was just so wonderful to to talk with him about something uh, that is really important for our understanding of humanity, for our understanding of human civilization, uh, big people groups, um, uh, many 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 years ago. But trying to understand more of what makes um, uh, humans interesting in different parts of the world, how they have impact generations later, um, and, and how we're still finding uh, artifacts um, and many aspects of long ago cultures of uh, different people groups. Um, I think it's really important work. He's the, the top guy on Assyrian uh, civilization, and it really was uh, an honor to, to talk to him for, for two hours, uh, which, I, which I greatly enjoyed. You can uh, listen to this conversation and all other conversations at my free Substack, convergingdialogues.substack.com. So subscribe there. And uh, now I bring you Eckert from. I am here with Eckert from. Eckert, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to, uh, to speaking with you uh, about your book. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Yes, of course. Um, so you've written a, a wonderful book. Uh, it's called Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire. Um, I absolutely loved it. And uh, it was it was really nice to get a kind of a nice, objective, fresh history on one of the early empires of uh, for, for humanity. So before we get into it, just tell folks a little bit about yourself. Uh, uh, what your background's in, uh, what you do, where you teach, research, and all the all the particulars. 
All right, so my name is Eckhard Fromm. I am a professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale. Originally, I hail from Germany, as my accent, I'm afraid, uh, reveals only too clearly. Uh, I have been here in the States for quite a while, though. And my research has, in fact, focused on the Syrian and Syrian history for many years. I wrote my dissertation on an Assyrian king, Sennacherib. I've also been interested in the intellectual history of ancient Mesopotamia. Syria is part of you know, the many civilizations um, that thrived in this area of ancient Iraq. Um, and I do like to connect uh, intellectual and cultural history with political history. Syria is a particularly uh, fruitful uh, topic in this respect because our sources are so rich that we can really uh, approach a history that you can approach a history of Assyria from really very different angles. Um, and the book is primarily a political history, but it also attempts to show well how religion and culture and literature uh, impacted um, Assyria in various ways. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because we we start to see if you if one will study different civilizations that uh, there's overlap in some things, but there are some things that make certain civilizations, certain empires uh, distinct. <clears throat> um, some people may be familiar with, obviously, the Roman Empire, the beginning of the first century, maybe familiar with the Persian, the height of the Persian Empire, maybe the Babylonians, there's some crossover there. But the Assyrians, what many people may not know is, is before this, at least at their height. And so one of the really unique things, I would say, or maybe not entirely unique, but at least for the time, was how quickly the fall of the Assyrian Empire was, which you which you detail in the book, which I, I also thought was interesting. Um, so well, I want to give the overview, but I'll just lay my cards on the table for for listeners. Some people may know that I have a background in in theology. I went to a Reformed uh, seminary and and studied a lot of this stuff for many years, and so. I always knew Assyria as as the villains. If you're taking a Judeo-Christian perspective, which um, is obviously not true, um, it's there's obviously you know not a you know <laughs> this false dichotomy of good and bad or whatever. But um, it was really really nice for me to to read your book uh, from an objective standpoint, hearing familiar names and dates and places that I had learned from a different vantage point and just seeing it with a broader lens. Um, was was really really wonderful and, and captivating, and so I, I I you know I had a blast reading it, and so uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm thrilled to to look at it from a different lens. So I, I really appreciate it. Um, let's start with a an overview of the Assyrian Empire. You talk about these different periods: the old Assyrian, the transition, the Middle Assyrian, the Neo Assyrian. Could you just kind of give us an overview of the Assyrian Empire? Uh, in terms of the periods and the timeline, and then uh, and kind of where it's located at in modern day and things like that. Right. So let's perhaps start with geography, um, which of course defines empire very much. So the um, Assyria is an is an ancient land located in the northeastern area, what is today the the Republic of Iraq. Um, marked by a triangle formed by three cities, Nineveh, which is on the other um, side of the Tigris, opposite of the modern city of Mosul, 
uh, Al-Bela, the modern city of Al-Bil in northeastern Iraq, and a city named Ashur, some 100 kilometers or 60 miles south of Mosul on the Tigris River. So this is sort of the core area of Assyria. And from there, the Assyrians at some point started to expand and eventually become what I have called the world's first empire. Of course, something one can question. Maybe we can discuss this later. Um, the name Assyria is actually Greek. So this is how the Greeks referred to this um, land in their historical writings. It goes back, though, to an Assyrian uh, word, an Assyrian name that's Ashur. That's also, in fact, the name uh, with which the Hebrew Bible refers to Assyria, so the land of Assyria that's Eretz Ashur in Hebrew. Um, and that name, Ashur, is originally the name of the city, the city of Ashur, which I mentioned as being the so on the southern end of Assyria, actually, um, which um, is really the incubator of Assyrian civilization. So this is where in the third uh, millennium BCE, uh, Assyrian civilization began to emerge. And the first uh, period for which we have fairly ample documentation is the so-called Old Assyrian period. That is a time sort of between 2000 BCE and 1700 BCE. And at this point, there isn't really yet a state of Assyria. There's only a city-state of Ashur. Um, so Ashur doesn't really have political power much reaching much beyond in the limits of the city. But it already has a pretty broad geographic horizon. That's thanks to the fact that Ashur at this point is the hub of a commercial network. Um, we can talk about that in greater detail later. But at any rate, you have merchants from the city of Ashur traveling fine wide, especially into Anatolia, um, trading tin and textiles for silver. Um, and this is essentially how yeah, Syria comes into itself as this city-state with uh, this commercial network. There is then there are a few centuries that occasionally call the Dark Age um, always a problematic term because the question is: Is the darkness in the eye of the beholder? Was it really such a dark age? Um, so between 1700 and 1400 BCE, so 300 years where we don't really know that much what's what's going on, but a lot is actually happening because when the dust settles after this period. We see that, um, well, we see the actual emergence of an Assyrian territorial state. So in the 14th century, um, Ashur begins to expand. Um, there are now also kings, real kings in charge. We can talk about that as well uh, as we move on. Um, and um, as this Middle Assyrian period, which lasts about until 1000 BCE, continues, uh, Assyria expands its borders, especially to the west uh, to the Khabur River. That's a tributary of the Euphrates River. Mesopotamia is a term um, literally between the rivers that refers to the land between the Euphrates and the Tigris Rivers. At any rate, uh, Assyria is now not only this land from, from, from Ashur to Nineveh and to Arbela, but also further west. Um, so it becomes a major territorial state uh, interacting with other states uh, at that time, like Egypt, the Hittite uh, kingdom in Anatolia, Babylonia in the south. Uh, the Middle Assyrian period ends around 1000 and is followed by another crisis, so about 100 years uh, from which we have a few sources where um, we see another contraction of Assyrian power, uh, but not a complete breakdown. Uh, so the Assyrian royal dynasty remains in power. Um, and 
when the dust settles yet again, uh, so in the second half of the 10th century BCE, uh, we see the Assyrian state slowly but steadily expanding into an even larger geopolitical entity. This doesn't happen without um, crises again, but um, in the second half of the 8th century BCE, Assyria is the preeminent um, political entity in uh, all of Western Asia and becomes what I would say is indeed the first, world's first empire. This is the time of kings like Tilabilezer III, Sennacherib, Ashurbanipal, um, famous kings known also from the Hebrew Bible. When Assyria uh, reaches um, geographically from Western Iran to Egypt and from um, you know, central Turkey down to the Persian Gulf. So this is the time of its greatest expansion. Um, and as you already pointed out, this then ends remarkably quickly and dramatically with the collapse of this of this great kingdom um, during the years between 626 and 609. Uh, so just within um, 12, 15 years or so, um, Assyria breaks down almost entirely. The Assyrian, Assyrian statehood comes to an end at the end of this period. Assyrian culture, at least religious culture, lives on. Uh, to some extent, the god Ashur, who's worshipped in the city of his name, remains a deity of some significance in that city and is still worshipped in the early Christian period. But otherwise, um, politically, Assyria's time is over. But the model that this empire uh, has actually essentially created uh, remains unforgotten. And the idea of empire as such uh, becomes a powerful one um, uh, in well, in, 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 in the Middle East and beyond with later states, beginning with the New Babylonian state and the Persians, whom you also mentioned, and so on and so forth, and essentially up to the Ottomans um, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, carrying this idea onwards. And of course, even other empires in the West, albeit only indirectly, some degree, I think, also owe this idea of empire uh, to the ancient Assyrians. And uh, Syria, at any rate, is also remembered in later tradition as this as being the first empire in world history, both in uh, the Bible, uh, which provides pretty detailed and often accurate information on on some of these Assyrian kings of the imperial period, and also in classical sources where, um, yeah, as Greek historians, Greek Roman historians like Diodorus claim that the Assyrians created essentially the first great state, the great empire, and. Uh, this tradition lives on throughout the Middle Ages and into early modernity, with with Assyria being the first in this long sequence of of a translatio imperii, as it is called in in Latin, uh, uh, and, yeah, a sequence of empires throughout history. With the Roman, of course, the Roman Empire, the greatest of all. What? That's a that's a lovely overview, and and I and I'm curious here because a little bit I've read, and you mentioned the book. What do you think it was about this region of northern Iraq, which, you know, there's still many people groups that are still there today, um, that made it just kind of fertile ground for many civilizations to either arise from there or to be there or to, to, to have, uh, cohabitate there? What is it about Mesopotamia in general, you know, this region between the Tigris and Euphrates uh, rivers? that just made it such a hotbed for so many things, whether it's trade or um, different like cities that pop up or people groups. What, what was it about that location that makes it so you know, unique? 
I like this term, a hotbed for so many things. <laughs> I think that's actually true. And um, it is, in fact, I mean, many firsts, historical firsts can be located in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, well, um, one thing is, again, in geography, um, in Mesopotamia, including what would later become Assyria, is part of the so-called Fertile Crescent. But a crescent is a geographic region that starts sort of in southern Palestine and then sort of forms a crescent along the Taurus Rage in, in, in southeastern Turkey uh, towards the Zagros Mountains of Iran down to the to the Persian Gulf. And uh, what makes this region important is that um, in this area you have enough rainfall to practice agriculture. And if you wish, agriculture is being invented in the Fertile Crescent. This is the reason why it is called Fertile. Uh, it is here where from roughly 11,000 BC onwards and then for many uh, millennia to come, you have uh, phenomena such as the domestication of, of, of certain crops like emma and vine, uh, vine corn, so varieties of, of wheat, um, of, of animals like goats and sheep and cows and dogs and so on. Um, and where you have agriculture, of course, you have um, dramatic changes in, in in the way people are living their lives. They no longer uh, live as, as hunters and gatherers. They become sedentary. They create villages. They live in villages. Eventually, these villages will turn into cities. This is a very long process. And therefore, calling this the Neolithic Revolution is a little bit misleading because it is really something that happens over millennia. But it does happen in this area. And, and many sites in what would later become Assyria are sort of key for this development. Um, but then you can also observe that some um, particularly important uh, breakthroughs in civilization, uh, like the invention of, of writing, the emergence of big cities actually happen more in the south of Mesopotamia rather than in the north. So not in what would later be Assyria, but rather in a region later inhabited by the so-called Babylonians, so a region essentially south of modern Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, which is an alluvial plain where you can no longer have rain-fed agriculture, uh, but where you have a very fertile uh, very fertile soil that's carried down by the two rivers, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. But in order to cultivate crops in this area, you need to have organization. You need to have a managerial uh, class. You need to, because you need to, to build dams and canals to water the fields and you have to make sure the water is then, uh, that the fields, that the water is, is, is again removed from those fields to prevent salinization and things like that. So, um, in order to have that, you have to have a division of labor. And uh, what that leads to eventually is the emergence of big cities with humanitarian um, classes, uh, a great deal of social stratification and so on. And that happens uh, first and foremost in southern Mesopotamia, in, especially in the fourth millennium BCE. The key city here is the city of Uruk, famous as the place where later on the legendary King Gilgamesh is king. Um, this is where, for example, writing is invented and that writing was probably invented in Mesopotamia around 3500 BC or so mm -hmm. um, in order to keep track of economic um, transactions that would take place um, to essentially as a managerial tool. And it takes a while, several centuries actually for north of Mesopotamia, the area of Assyria, to um yeah to 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 assume to to adopt some of these these breakthroughs um but you already have sort of proto cities in this area around 3000 bce and um 
Well, um, as time goes by, um, this area of northeastern Iraq becomes part of, of the cultural world of, of Mesopotamia. Also of the political world. So in, in southern Mesopotamia, you have the emergence of, of big kingdoms, kingdoms that, that rule over extended uh, areas. Uh, first, the so-called uh, dynasty of Agade, um, that begins in 2350, then the kingdom of Ur. And they um, seem to also rule over the areas of, of, of what would become Assyria. And so around 2500 BCE, you have for the first time um, archaeological traces from the city of Ashur, uh, this, this place from which Assyrian culture emerges. And we don't know that, that much about it because, well, uh, you have to dig down into these tells uh, deep in order to find these very early traces. But it's clear that, um, for example, there are, there are temples at places where later on Syrian temples would be found, including a very important temple of the goddess Ishtar, goddess of love and war, from where we have a, a large number of votive figures, so figurines of 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 of, um, of of men and women, actually quite a few women, um, shown in the act of praying and uh, put up in place in front of uh, a statue of the goddess Ishtar, it seems, which shows sort of a little bit how these people actually looked like, the people who lived there. And it also seems that around 2,500 people in Asha were speaking a Semitic language that may have been an early version of Assyrian. One of the things that define Assyrian culture is language, as always, culture is, of course, defined um, in, in important ways by language. Assyrian is a language related to the language of, of the South, which is called Babylonian. Both of them are part of another language family named Akkadian. And this is Semitic. These are Semitic languages that are similar to Hebrew or Arabic. Um, so we was made, made it easier to decipher them, in fact. So we know that uh, some kind of early Assyrian was spoken in Asha from 2500 onwards. Um, again, we have evidence also that during this time, Asha was ruled by these southern kingdoms. Uh, in between, it was probably already independent. But um, we don't know yet that much about anything else. But one thing that's perhaps also important uh, sort of about Ashur from early on, I mentioned that Ashur is sort of at the very southern end of Assyria in an area where you have barely these 200 millimeters of annual rainfall that is required to have a viable agriculture. So further to the north, there you have cities like Nineveh or Abila, you have more rainfall and, and agriculture is easier to practice. In Ashur, this is always a precarious affair. And I think this is one of the reasons why Ashur became so much a place for trade. Because trade, of course, you need agriculture in order to have trade. And, and Ashur is, is conveniently located at the crossroads of different um, roads, um, north-south and east-west. So the, visa, uh, the, the resource-rich regions of the north and the east are connected with, with alluvial plains, agricultural-rich alluvial plains of the south. And while in the west, you have these, these steppe regions where you can have flocks of sheep and so on. Uh, Asher is also directly on a, on a ford um, where you can pretty easily um, cross the Tigris River. So these are also reasons why um, it's it's a convenient place to engage in trade. At any rate, trade is very much what defines that city from, from early on and um, is, is a very important factor in the early history of Assyria and remains to some extent important even towards the later phases of Assyrian history. 
Yeah, I was. I was while you were talking there. I was. I was curious about the the impact of of language and these. Uh, what, what do we say? These cuneiform uh, types of, of of language. And you mentioned Akkadian as a as a type of language. Uh, obviously, Babylonian as well. But Akkadian is a little bit uh, older, or there's some overlap with with early Asher period. Is is this correct? And and if so, how much of that kind of pulls? Or influences how Assyria was, you know, developing as a as a kind of entity on its own of sorts. Yeah, it's complicated with languages, of course. So, um, unlike Egypt, Egypt is always much easier to explain. Essentially, you have Egyptian, and and um, it's a very homogeneous culture. Mesopotamia is more complicated in a way. I would say therefore also more more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, from early on in Mesopotamia, you have a variety of different languages being spoken. The earliest is Sumerian. Yeah. That's the language of the very first cuneiform documents known from Mesopotamia. So, in these documents from the late fourth millennium, people were writing in Sumerian. But from early on, um, people in this very region were also speaking Semitic languages. And those those languages are subsumed by modern linguists under the term Akkadian. Um, The earliest form of it is Old Akkadian. That's language spoken during the time of this great kingdom of Agade. Kings like Sargon of Akkad, Naramsin of Akkad, who also ruled over Ashur. Um, And this Old Akkadian then splits up into two different dialects. In the south, it's Babylonian. In the north, it's Assyrian. So they are very similar. Uh, Assyrian and Babylonian, I think um, speakers of Assyrian would have understood speakers of Babylonian, vice versa. Uh, But they do have, I mean, characteristic differences as well. So they also mark specific identities. Um, We can talk about that later as well. uh, But I think it's important to note, perhaps since I'm speaking about it anyway here now, um, that the Assyrians from early on are very uh, interested in this culture of uh, their southern neighbors in Babylonia. So uh, later on, um, they adopt um, much on Babylonian and also Sumerian literature. And uh, even before that, from the third millennium onwards, they... um, seem to also um, uh, adopt many of the deities worshipped initially in the south and make them their own. Um, The main deity, of course, and that's another important thing that needs to be pointed out when one talks about the Assyrian identity, the main deity in Assyria is this god Ashur. That is a deity, as mentioned that already, it's the same name as that of a city and very much sort of a god that embodies that city. It's a pretty abstract deity. Initially, you could say a god without qualities almost. It's very much really identical with the city. The main temple is, is on this rocky crack overlooking the Tigris on the uh, northeastern edge of the city of Ashur. Um, unlike deities from southern Mesopotamia, um, who have families and about whom stories are being told, they have a mythology. Ashur doesn't really. He assumes such a mythology later by being identified with some of these southern gods. He is a very peculiar god otherwise, though. And because he is so peculiar, of course, he is a very important marker of the Syrian identity. His image changes. He's initially this, this Lumen Loki represents the city. He later on becomes a very warlike God, as always, I mean, religion um, is um, um, metamorphizes in the way politics and other features of society change. Uh, people um, then adapt, and 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 uh, religion is is is, is accordingly um, uh, adapted to to these to these new realities. Um, but still, Ashur remains this really significant uh, deity. 
while at the same time, the Assyrians also worship many additional gods and goddesses, many of whom are imported from the south, from Babylonia. I was going to ask about uh, Asher because it seems like it's not only is it the main city, but it's also the god. Um, it's where kind of everything kind of starts uh, and begins. And so how, how does that what what I mean, as much as you're able to know, right, from 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 whichever uh, manuscripts or from various uh, uh, finds to know about is from so long ago. But where does this stuff kind of originate from? Is this just from a, a group of people? Is this from everyone getting together and saying, like, this is a, a god we're going to worship and we're going to name a city after it? How do we understand maybe how these or is it just kind of like you were saying, uh, adopting a lot of different things? from other types of languages or cultures in the region? How did these things kind of form or, or take place? That's still very hard to know um, because writing on a large scale um, doesn't really begin, at least to the extent we can we can ascertain at this point, before roughly 2000 BCE. So um, the earliest evidence for the worship of deities from the city of Asher actually comes from this temple of the goddess Ishtar, not from the temple of Ashur. But that may simply be due to the accidents of discovery at the place where from certainly sorry, from, from, from roughly 2200 or so onwards, Ashur was worshipped, um, has not really been possible to, to dig deep enough um, to find whether there were earlier there earlier traces of a very early uh, temple. I would uh, assume there was. I think probably... Uh, the Temple of Asher goes back to very early times and and from very early on already uh, essentially marked the identity of the people of that very city. Uh, but when you think about Assyria and its later history, it's also important that this great this idea of also worshipping a great goddess is important also from early on because, I mean, at the beginning, Assyrian culture is very much um, limited to the city of Asher. Later on, though, you have these other cities like Nineveh and Kalach and Arbila, um, and we know that, uh, for example, in Nineveh, you also have uh, a great goddess um, who was worshipped there already during the third millennium. In Arbela, it's another such great goddess. Um, at Nineveh, she was worshipped initially, though, under a name that's Horian, uh, Shaushka, which means the great one. Horian, that's another language spoken um, in the ancient Near East from early on, an isolated language not related to any known language except for or Artian, which is also related from, from later times. Uh, this was a there was a language of, of a population group that also lived in northern Iraq in the third millennium BC, maybe even earlier. And um, the culture, for example, of cities such as Nineveh and 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 Arbela probably really is 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 uh, shaped very much by these Horians. Um, at some point in later tradition, um, when the kings of Ashur expand their kingdom and, and uh, Nineveh and these other places become part of an Assyrian territory state. This Horian culture is um, kind of downplayed and, and uh, replaced by, uh, by a culture the Assyrians take very much from Babylonia. But it's part of this, this very early uh, mix of different peoples and, and, and religions um, in this area. Um, so... Um, where the god Ashur comes from, where these early Samites come from that we know lived in Ashur around 2,500, we, we can't say. Um, maybe one day when we, we, we can excavate the deeper layers of Ashur, uh, this, this will 
we will figure that out. But for the time being, all we can say is that around 2,500, um, after a sort of period of, of increased urbanization in this area on the upper and middle, middle Tigris River, the city of Asher becomes an important city um, in the north and uh, probably from early on one that is especially significant for the international trade taking place in this area. So, so I want to ask about that 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 piece of it is it, it starts from like a city and becomes more of like a land and then it, it gets to, to eventually the empire. So maybe you could you could talk here about um, some of the first rulers, uh, Pusar Asher the first, how he governed Assyria, uh, and then subsequent rulers after him, and then what became the interactions as you've been mentioning with it was Asher as a central hub, and then it became uh, Nineveh. And then it became other other cities, and as it starts to expand, how did we start to see uh, uh, rulers governing not just a city, uh, not just a region, but it starts to as it expands how they also change their governing style and how they uh, incorporated trade and other types of things uh, in the region. So that takes a long time, actually. Um, you mentioned this Pozo Asher, uh, Pozo Asher the first. He's usually considered the, the ancestor of a dynasty of hereditary rulers who rule over Asha from roughly 2025 or so until, until 1700 BCE or so, sorry, 1800 BCE or so. Um, so for, for some 200 years. Um, also, Asha himself didn't leave any inscriptions, so all we know about him is from, from later texts uh, that credit him, for example, with the construction of the city wall of Ashur. Uh, prior to him, um, we know that at least at times there were other uh, independent rulers in Ashur, um, but we don't really know much about their family background and so on and so forth. And we have a document that's very important for the reconstruction of Assyrian history, that's the so-called Assyrian King List, that essentially gives us an overview of all the Assyrian kings from the very beginnings to the to the to the eighth century BCE. Um, that list um, claims, for example, that initially Ashur was was ruled by kings who lived in tents um, and and some other fairly obscure figures. But these very early kings in the king list are probably became part of the king list only at some later point. They they were not in fact early historic kings of Ashur. So. Um, with this Puzo Asha, we we enter a period from which we actually have a lot of um, of, of 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 documentation, and um, so these these hereditary rulers, starting with Puzo Asha and others, would uh, include rulers such as Shalem Achom and and Erishom the first. There's no need for me to mention these uh, unpronounceable names here. I think um, that's better to read them; otherwise, one won't one will forget them right away. But um, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that. While these rulers do have certain prerogatives, for example, they're the only ones allowed since uh, for these 200 years or so while this dynasty is in office to write inscriptions in their own name and, and they're in charge of building temples and things like that. This is what they do. While they have these, these rights and privileges, they are clearly not terribly powerful uh, sort of altogether. What is very striking about these first 200 years of the oldest Assyrian period, so roughly uh, 2000 to 1800 BC, is the fact that um, the governance of the city of Ashur um, is divided between these hereditary rulers, an assembly of all the free citizens of Ashur, and um, 
well, an institution known as the City Hall that is uh, headed by an official um, named Limum in Assyrian, after whom years are named in the Assyrian calendar. So you have essentially three institutions, a monarch, or proto-monarchical institution, that's the hereditary rulers, kind of of aristocratic uh, limums who, who are in charge of the city hall and this popular assembly. Um, and the popular assembly, um, city uh, assembly, uh, apparently meets on a regular basis in an area possibly at the place where later on the ziggurat of the Temple of Asher is built on the northern part of the city of Asher. And what they do there is they um, decide, for example, about judicial matters. Um, and well, in that way, of course, determine politics. And we don't have the laws that they um, that they promulgated uh, from Asher itself, but we have um, evidence for some of them from a place 950 kilometers away from Asher, a trade colony, so to speak, um, where uh, citizens of Asher would live in order to engage in their uh, trade activities, Karnesh in central Anatolia. And so some of these laws, for example, would say that uh, merchants from Asher were not allowed to sell gold and silver to merchants from Babylonia or uh, from, from Amuro in the West. So there is some sort of uh, economic protectionism in place by, by punishment of death. So this was something that the city assembly, the popular assembly, would be able to, to decide. Um, the city hall would uh, be in charge of weight and measures and taxation and so on. So altogether, the political system in place early on in Ashur is one one that one could call sort anachronistically a mixed constitution, yeah. uh, quite similar to how the Greek historian Polybius describes the political system of of Republican Rome. We have the, the Senate as an aristocratic institution and the, 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 the uh, popular assembly as a, as a democratic institution and um, where the consuls as a, as a kind of uh, more autocratic or monarchical one. Um, so this is quite similar actually in Assyria. And the hereditary rulers are not even allowed to uh, call themselves king. So they, whereas in, in, in the South, um, you have rulers who would, use the Akkadian word, the Babylonian word, Shavom, to refer to themselves, which is king. Um, those Assyrian rulers uh, can call themselves sort of the, the deputy of the god Ashur or the, the overseer or prince, uh, difficult to translate, but they are never using the term king. Uh, they also seem not to have really a, a palace. There's no evidence for, for a palace in old Assyrian Ashur. Uh, they have no court. There are no chief cabarras also um, and other courtly officers whom you find plenty in the south in Mesopotamia and even, for example, at Karnesh, where you have a local ruler in place who has such servants. These Assyrian rulers don't. Um, so it's a really interesting um, thing that, that Asher starts off as a, a, as a really non-autocratic political entity, considering that it will eventually become this highly... Uh, streamlined autocracy, this imperial autocracy, um, as which it then becomes so famous in the Bible, of course, the king of Asher is fully in charge of everything in this later times. This is quite striking. And it's important to keep in mind that 
really, I mean, Asher and Assyria undergo a number of remarkable metamorphoses uh, before they really become this empire. As an empire, they eventually become famous, the Assyrians, but before they are an empire, they are different other things. Yeah, I think that is important to know. And that, that's why the, the where, with for any uh, empire, uh, the origins are always interesting, right? Because to become uh, great or expansive or, or or very domineering, you know, you have to start from some place. And it's interesting to see, and of course, you're talking about hundreds of years of time, but it's interesting to see uh, where those or, origins, you know, begin. I guess the... The one piece is is this expansion. So as you get to the middle Assyrian period, um, you're, you're having cities now. You have some sort of land. You have, as you're talking about these political kinds of uh, ways of, of operating, um, you, you mentioned that the middle Assyrian period is uh, being a patriarchal society um, and that there's a, a few kings here that bring about economic and, and cultural changes and patterns. Maybe just, just chat about how the middle Assyrian period you know, worked, which was, you know, roughly, uh, you know, three, 300 years, 400 years of, of time. So how did we move from, you know, this, you know, the old uh, Syrian period to transition period, all the way to, you know, 1300 ish BC, or just before that, um, you know, and, and then that goes for three, 350 years. Just talk about what was the key moments or, or key figures uh, for the middle Assyrian period. Yeah, so you have an interesting moment already in old Assyrian times when a foreign ruler, um, pretty colorful personality by the name of Shamshi Adad the first, uh, conquers Ashur, and for wise or creates a large uh, territorial state of the kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia, as it is called by modern scholars, that rules everything so from the Middle Euphrates area in in eastern Syria. Uh, to to the Zagros Mountains, a pretty powerful state. Ashur is not the capital of the state, but one of its major cities. And this king, the Shamshi Adad, um, leaves inscriptions in Ashur in which he clearly indicates that Ashur is important for him. His calendar practices uh, draw on on those of Ashur. Um, this doesn't really last very long. His son and successor Ishmael Dagan is already uh, very much weakened. And uh, when he eventually, um, in the 18th century BCE, uh, when he dies, this interlude uh, of these powerful territorial rulers is over and the um, previous model of, of divided governance uh, is put into place again. I think, though, that the people of Asha must have remembered this time. Uh, this was, for them, an opportunity to see that you can have a very different system, a very different political system in place, where you actually have a king. This Shamshi Adad is a king. He calls himself a shovel, a real king. And so I mentioned there is this there are this, this dark age. So between 1700 and, and 1400, we know very little. The Assyrian royal dynasty remains in place. Um, but um, otherwise, it's very hard to say what happens. What we can say is that these Horians, and I mentioned before, yeah. um, that they create a state of their own now, um, the so-called state of Mitanni, uh, centered around a city named Vashukani in eastern, what is modern Syria and eastern Syria, um, and put a lot of political pressure on Ashur. Ashur remains over long periods of time somewhat independent, but the, the, these, these, these heredity rulers there were still in place, they feel this pressure and they see probably uh, as time goes by that they need to adapt in order to be able to somehow 
to somehow cope with with this constant pressure if they they want to keep their identity as Assyrians. Up to this point, Asher is also remarkably peaceful. This is quite interesting. Again, Asher becomes this, you mentioned it, this these villains in the Bible constantly conquering foreign places. And I mean, that is what they do in the first millennium and uh, starting in, around, around uh, in the 14th century. Initially, they don't, uh, whereas in, in southern Babylonia, in the first half of the second millennium, you have endless wars between city-states and sometimes larger territorial ones. Ashur essentially stays away from the fray. They don't engage it. But at some point, uh, the rulers in Ashur realize that in order to remain competitive, they have to adapt to this situation where you have also an army and where you have a king and where everything becomes more autocratic. Again, how exactly this came about, we can't say. But in the 14th century, we have this king, Ashurbanipal the first, who is the first Assyrian ruler to actually assume this title of a king, who communicates with other kings of territorial states um, of the same time, including uh, the king of, of Egypt. So the Egyptian pharaohs write to him and he writes to them. And these letters written in um, in, in, in the Babylonian language and in cuneiform were found in Egypt at a site known as Tel el famous for being the, the capital of the hereditary pharaoh Akhenaten. Uh, Akhenaten. Um, so they communicate with these Egyptians, with the Hittites in the north, with the Babylonians. And they also start sort of to expand. Um, and expansion soon becomes part of the state ideology also of, of the religious matrix of Assyria. Um, the coronation ritual, which is put into place to, to celebrate the coronation of the Assyrian king, includes a statement, a call made by the high priest of Ashur, um, essentially in the name of the god Ashur, um, which uh, requests from the Assyrian king um, that he expand his land, rapish uh, matka, expand your land with your just scepter. That's what this text says. So after this very peaceful period that preceded um, the Middle Assyrian period, now suddenly you have kings who are very keen on expansion and expansion by military means. This seems a big, big step um, and a, a major transformation in two respects. There's also continuity. I mean, on one hand, um, this idea of, of acquisitiveness. I mean, this is the Assyrians were always interested in, in acquiring wealth. They did it up to this point through trade. Now they do it by military power. And at the same time, there is this vast geographic framework within which they operated before. During the old Assyrian period, they had these trade colonies in Anatolia. They traded tin and textiles uh, from uh, Babylonia and from the east for silver from, from Anatolia. Uh, they they knew how how logistics uh, work when you, when you travel far and wide. And of course, you can use that for trade, but you can also use it for military conquest. Um, they adopt some of the military um, qualifications of the Horians. It's interesting that the main title of the Assyrian chief marshal, the, the main, main general of the Assyrian army is, is Tortanu. That is a title uh, that goes back to the Horian language. So uh, they apparently learn from the Horians how to fight. And eventually they do fight. And they capitalize on... Um, internal unrest within this state of Mitanni, this Western state ruled by, by Horians, and um, eventually um, expand into the area of that state and uh, more or less take it over at some point. 
and and then have a kingdom that uh, includes cities like Nineveh in the north um, and Albion in the east, but also cities on the Khabur River um, in eastern Syria. Um, now, the Khabur River is so and so far away from the Tigris River. And what uh, the kings soon realize is that it's important to have a representative in this area um, to be able to do do you react to any kind of act of unrest and so on? And so they put into place a viceroy who is henceforth in charge of, of the Western portions of the Assyrian Empire. And this is already shows you the problem, of course, of every empire. If you have a, a large territory state, um, then um, the center, the political center, may have trouble to, um, yeah, to get its orders fulfilled in areas far away. So the Assyrians solve that by means of having a representative of the Assyrian king with a lot of authority in the West. They also start sort of using a lot of violence, including um, sort of gouging out the eyes of the enemies, flaying them, and talking about that extensively in the inscriptions. Everyone did this sort of thing, I mean, including the Egyptians and later, of course, on the, 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 the Romans also. So um, when um, modern audiences consider the Assyrians um, unspeakably brutal and much more brutal than other peoples of the ancient Near East, it is important to take into account that the others did the same thing. But the Assyrians are indeed perhaps more outspoken. They also portray these acts in, um, in, on, on, in imagery and so on. To some extent, it's probably um, sort of self-indoctrination to a significant extent, uh, sort of making sure that the uh, Assyrian elites uh, confronted with images and texts about sort of endorsing violence um, are willing to actually practice violence. Um, it's not so much perhaps about deterrence, which has often been believed. But they do this. They also start um, to deport significant portions of enemy populations. That's another thing that defines the Assyrian uh, way of of conquest uh, for centuries to come. Uh, wherever they meet resistance, they um, they seize large parts of the population, including especially the elites, um, and then deport them to other places um, of their kingdom. On one hand, uh, with the goal of destroying local identities and, and political alliances, but also, of course, to have a workforce wherever it is needed. Because um, labor is always, uh, there's always a labor shortage in the ancient world. So labor is a limiting factor to economic development. And uh, by deporting lots of people to places, especially inside, of course, in the center of Assyria, the they they have the workforce to to work on these construction sites, they, to, to build new capitals later on in the first millennium and so on. But they also have agricultural workers wherever they need them, uh, perhaps rather in the east than, than in the west and so on. So these are practices that we can see uh, emerging in this in this time, especially in the thirteenth um, in the thirteenth century, when when this massive expansion takes place. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that you're you're showing in a, in a variety of different ways is how you you mentioned it uh, a little bit there of as an empire begins to expand, you you start to have different things you have to manage, which can be difficult, especially as you're geographically moving further away. And especially as you're encountering or or dealing with, uh, you know, other communities or other people groups or what have you, which have may have their own interests that can be uh, advantageous for one group and and less so for another group. Um, and so it does seem like there is a kind of sort of trial and error here that's going on. 
But then when you get to, and this is in the middle of your book, kind of closer to the height of, of the Assyrian Empire is where you have the reign of Tilgath uh, Peliser the third yeah, uh, up until yeah. Sargon the first, and so and then you have Sargon the second and Sinatra after him. So maybe just talk about how we ramp up to to Sargon the second and, and Sinatra because those are the kind of the big big uh, rulers, and those are the ones that are um, obviously in the Bible as well, and in, in the historical books, and I think in First and Second Kings and Minor Prophets and stuff. So kind of how do we ramp up to 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 that to that period? Right. So the military period leads to this um, expansion of Assyria. Assyria becomes a territorial state with major Western possessions, but it isn't yet an empire. It's a kingdom. Um, and it actually faces a major crisis. Um, so starting in the 11th century BCE, that's part of this big, big crisis um, known um, often often connected with the so-called sea peoples, but also uh, probably having to do with climate change, a uh, greater degree of aridity around this time. Um, Assyria suffers uh, incursions by Arameans who, um, who conquer uh, portions of the western parts of the Assyrian kingdom in the 11th and early 10th century BCE. And that happens all over the place. This is the time when other states co collapse entirely. The Hittite state in Anatolia comes to an end. Babylonia is in dire straits. Egypt is reduced to its core areas, is no longer able to interfere in the Levant. So Assyria is also affected by this, especially by these Armenian incursions, but less so than others. Uh, the city of Ashur is never conquered. And the Assyrians are the first ones sort of to, to get back on their feet uh, when the climate actually becomes, again, more uh, amenable to, to start having, having better harvests and so on, which happens in the later 10th uh, century BCE. So this is a time when rainfall increases again. And of course, that enables the Assyrians then, um, based on economic surplus that they can create, um, to send armies back into the areas that would be before. So what you first see in the first millennium BC is that the kings of that time sort of reconquer areas that they had lost before. And this happens, for example, under the reign of kings such as Tukutinota II, Ashanachibar II. So Assyria essentially, um, Assyria reconquista, if one wants to put it with a somewhat anachronistic term, reconquers the areas that it would before. Um, Ashanachibar II does another thing. He, he moves the royal court away from Ashur to a new capital, the city of Kalach, which is often in the center of Assyria. So it's, it's uh, I, mean, I mentioned this triangle formed by uh, Nineveh, Ashur, and Abiel. Uh, Kalach is in the middle. Kalach is a much bigger city than Ashur. But Kalach is still a city where essentially Ashur can start from scratch. Through his conquest, he has a lot of money and he has the ability now to build massive new temples and especially a massive new palace, which becomes the new sort of center of his power. And this move away from Asher probably also means that he is now less dependent on the ancient aristocratic elites of the city of Asher. So the Assyrian kings become ever more powerful. Uh, under his successor, Shamanizah, the Assyrians uh, engage in many campaigns if further into the Western into Western areas, up to so modern Phrygia or so in, in Anatolia, 
their air con their their campaigns to the Mediterranean, but they are not yet able to consolidate uh, these 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 conquests. So they they receive tribute or so, but then they go back. And there is actually then in the early eighth century, there's even sort of something you could call a crisis of the crown because suddenly you have again some um, sort of important Assyrian administrators and generals calling the shots. The Assyrian kings remain formally in power, but they are kind of weakened. And uh, so in the 760s and 750s, you have a real crisis um, also caused um, by pandemics, it seems. So we are living in a time when this, of course, is a topic on yes. everyone's mind. It is quite striking that um, here we we have a situation where we where we see from Assyrian chronological documents that Assyria is ravaged by plague. Mm. Um, what is really surprising uh, is that then suddenly in 745 you have this new king Tiglath-Pileser III coming to the throne. That in the immediate wake of this pretty major crisis, this king, this Tiglath-Pileser III, suddenly engages in a conquest of foreign territories on a scale never seen before. By the end of his reign in 727, uh, the size of the Assyrian, M well, I would say by now empire, because now it actually has become one, is twice as large as before. So he he really is a king, the Stiglapileser III, who, who changes things substantially. He also, unlike Shamanizer III, when he conquers an area, he turns it into a province. He isn't just happy with receiving tribute or so. Um, but he annexes places, he turns them into Assyrian provinces, he builds sort of a palace that is sort of a, a small image of the Assyrian royal palace um, at, at Kalach. Um, there has a provincial governor, usually eunuch, so they wouldn't actually create dynasties of their own. And those eunuchs would be in charge of um, taxing people, of of, of um yeah, making sure that um, a surplus of the agricultural goods produced in provinces are sent to the Assyrian center, uh, have uh, armies stationed there that the Assyrian king could use on his way uh, to additional conquests. All this is implemented at this time. So it's a big change. And again, it's striking and difficult to explain, of course, why does it happen after this major crisis? And I would argue and argue in this book that it happens exactly because of the crisis. The expansion under Tiglapileza is a is a reaction to the crisis. Um, among other things, the plague must have led to a major reduction in the Syrian uh, population. And of course, by having having these conquests and having mass deportations taking place, according to his inscriptions, Tiglapileza deports no fewer than 600,000 people, even though that may be a little exaggerated, probably not so, so much. So he gets the workforce he needs again, and he gets the wealth that Syria might have lost. So, um, I mean, it tells us something about history not being determined by by anything, unless, I mean, it really is, of course, if if, if the challenges are too big, then you cannot do anything about it. But Tegla is able to react to these challenges. He reacts in aggressive ways. So this isn't exactly a role model for our time. It's rather a warning, I would say, that bad actors might do things in a moment of crisis that, that others should be aware of. It really depends here, of course, on to what extent you identify this as Syria as an historian or you don't. Right. Um, at any rate, this is what happens. And this is the birth, I would say, of the Assyrian Empire. 
And then you have kings like Sargon II, like Sennacherib, like Asahadan and Ashurbanipal, uh, during whose rule this, this empire becomes even more powerful. It also experiences a number of, of uh, crises. We know an awful lot about it because now we have really many, many sources, very long royal inscriptions telling us about the campaigns, but also letters and uh, treaties and administrative and archival and legal texts. Um, literary texts from from Assyrian libraries that tell us something about Assyrian culture during this time. So um, it's not only sort of exciting to study this um, empire because it is uh, really an important political development we can we, we can trace here, but also because we simply know so much about it. Yeah, so so tell us about, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm curious, I know Sargon II was, was a huge figure, so you can ch chat about him real quick, but also about uh, Sennacher because he it, there's you talk about his third campaign and how he couldn't defeat Jerusalem which is you know pretty surprising if this is you know such a big uh you know uh, uh, empire uh, maybe just talk about how they how they govern and, and and maybe about this this third campaign a little bit right so Sargon as I mentioned already really successful with his with his various conquests reconquest Babylonia among other things that Tigapeleza had conquered already but that had gotten lost again um, secures the west where also he had to face a number of um, of rebellions the west that is actually sort of the Levant the area closer to the Mediterranean Sea and that brings us of course also closer to ancient Israel and ancient Judah uh, those kingdoms that that are, of course, better known to, to an educated public um, than these Mesopotamian ones because they are so prominently featured in the Bible. I mean, this is after all ancient Israel. So at that time um, of Sargon, um, you still have essentially two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and, northern, and the southern kingdom of Judah. But the northern kingdom is already severely um, reduced to a core area around the city of Samaria uh, after Tiglath-Pileser III had conquered Israel and had essentially brutally assaulted it, had annexed parts of it to Assyria and only left this one state. Under Sargon, even this one state of, 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 of Samaria, it comes to an end probably already on his predecessor, Shamanese V, and Israel essentially is divided up into Assyrian provinces and is no longer uh, an independent kingdom. And... Um, Sennacherib um, then becomes king after Sargon, after his very successful reign, is actually killed on campaign um, to the north. It's another story, but I think I might not tell it because it might get us uh, into areas too 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 complex to to discuss here. So uh, Sennacherib faces another rebellion in the west. Um, Places like Tyre and 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 Edom and and so on and so forth no longer pay their tribute, and that includes also Judah. Judah by that time is a vassal state of Assyria. Judah was smart enough not to fight Tiglath-Pileser III when he attacked. They said, "Okay, we accept that you are the great king. We pay you tribute and so on, but uh, leave us in peace, and we want to remain independent." But then they. Uh, are part of this rebellion after this violent death of Sargon II, um, with which King Sennacherib has to cope. Sennacherib comes to the throne in 705 BCE. For the first four years or so of his reign, no one in the West pays taxes anymore. Then he starts a campaign against the West. This is essentially a very kind of successful campaign. He starts off uh, conquering the area of the Kingdom of Sidon, um, which 
he manages to do um, when everyone else sees that this works on that the assurance are successful then many many of these other states are sending um, their emissaries there and, and actually pay fourfold tribute in order to make up for the non-paid tribute of the four previous years uh, but there are also some places that do not pay and that remain defined uh, the city of Ekron, for example, which is eventually conquered, and in fact, the land of Judah. Um, at that time, uh, the king in Judah is a king uh, by the name of Hezekiah, featured very prominently in the Bible. And Hezekiah, who um, sort of conspires with the people of Ekron, the, the Philistines there, uh, says, no, I want to remain independent. I'm not going to pay taxes to the Assyrians. I'm not going to submit to them. And that leads to this showdown where Sennacherib's troops in 701 BCE then invade the land of Judah. And based on what we learn from Assyrian sources, but also to some extent from the Bible, they are essentially initially quite successful and they force Hezekiah uh, to pay tribute. And here we have a case where I mean, we see that the Bible actually gets certain things quite right. So both the Bible and the Assyrian annals of Sennacherib claim, among other things, that Hezekiah would eventually pay Sennacherib a tribute of 30 talents of gold. So it's clearly a very specific datum. And uh, we see that, okay, here, the Bible, the biblical report is based on, on the Chronicle or something that is clearly accurate. But then the Bible um, I mean, Sennacherib claims, when we look at what he says, what happens at Jerusalem, he claims that he sort of um, courts Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Um, Hezekiah was no longer able to leave his city, nor were any other people in Jerusalem, and eventually he paid this big tribute. And then Sennacherib decided to accept it and return to Nineveh. Essentially a great thing. The Bible has it very differently. So in the Bible, you read that Hezekiah, I mean, praying to God and 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 uh, being encouraged by the prophet Isaiah, um, does not really yield to Sennacherib and and opposes him. And then it's uh, the story culminates in, in in a tale according to which the Assyrians have camped near Jerusalem, and then during the night, the angel of the Lord um, sort of comes down on the Assyrian army. 185,000 Assyrians are killed. Sennacherib is forced back to Nineveh and essentially there eventually is killed by his sons. And there's some truth in that he is eventually killed by his sons. We know that. But the business with these uh, 185,000 killed Assyrians, of course, is fantastic. This is a later theological interpretation. Um, an interpretation that wants to present Hezekiah as a great hero. Uh, it seems to me the truth is that the Assyrians probably made a, a, a cost-benefit analysis and, and realized that in Jerusalem, which is not easy to conquer, which is sort of in this rugged, uh, somewhat what, hilly Judean land, um, was not worth the effort of a, of, of, of a three-year siege or so. And since Hezekiah was willing to pay tribute, it was actually better for the Assyrians to to just to 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 accept that tribute and leave him in place as a as a loyal vessel, and I mean the Judeans from then on were loyal vessels, and Hezekiah's successor Manasseh, who's considered a bad king in the Bible, uh, ruled for some forty years, uh, is known to have sent tribute to the Assyrians and even uh, helped them with troops on uh, during their campaigns against Egypt. So here we have different sources telling us different things. Um, about an event that I think we can reconstruct with a certain degree of of, of accuracy.
But there are questions, including, again, I mean, what does it mean that there is this angel of the Lord mentioned? And some have argued that this is, in fact, an allusion to another kind of plague, that the Assyrian uh, forces at Jerusalem were struck by an epidemic, and that that was what what, uh, caused their return. I am still undecided when it comes to determining whether that's possible. There is actually a story about, in in Herodotus, the Greek historian, about um, mice attacking an Assyrian um, army under Sennacherib at Pelusium in Egypt. Uh, And mice are kind of rodents that could relate to plagues and so on. And um, so uh, it's hard to to be absolutely certain. And I would say that there is also the possibility that there was this additional crisis the Israeli army was facing and that that might have played a role. Um, It would be nice if we had additional sources at some point to determine this. This is one of those cases where scholars, I mean, since the first inscription of Sennacherib were uncovered uh, more than 170 years ago, have, have worked on. So have compared these Assyrian sources on one hand, the biblical on the others, and have tried to make sense and of it. It is an embarrassment of riches of sources, but the sources are sometimes uh, contradictory. And so the historian here is, is at, I mean, it's, it's an interesting challenge to, to really see what's happened. You mentioned that my history uh, book is objective. <laughs> of course, that would be nice, but we can only aspire to that. And I mean, we, we, our, our, any approach to history, of course, is always also subjective. And sure, regards, sure. You have to make up your mind at some point and say, this is well, what I believe, but I'm not sure. It, it is subjective in the sense that it does, uh, it's not, uh, it's not biased like uh, a holy scripture uh, said is, is that there's some uh, bias there, of course. Uh, it is it is interesting hearing about this. I mean, just for for listeners, uh, people will be familiar with the stories of um, uh, King David in the Bible and Solomon. And so there was three kings. Uh, is, is it uh, Saul, David, and Solomon? Yeah. They each ruled for forty years, so it's one hundred and twenty years total of what they call the United Kingdom of Israel. And in nine. 76 975 is when there was the divided kingdom so you basically had the northern and the southern kingdoms um and they had divergent ways of governing and being governed if you will by certain uh certain uh empires and so in one of these in the story that you just told which is detailed in uh first kings is that right i think that's right yeah, the later um, and two kings but second, second kings, kings second kings so. yeah um is is where you see this the Assyrian army and and how they they um, this this account uh, also as a as a note in if you if towards the end of the Old Testament uh, if, if if people look at this you'll see a bunch of prophets and you they're categorized as major minor just because of the length of the, uh, the books that are put in there and Isaiah. Uh, is one of the so-called major prophets, but the chronology fits with First and Second Kings, just as a as a kind of long footnote there. And so it's interesting, as I said, because that if you read it from you know uh, theologians or you know people that have various biblical commentaries, there's a certain type of um, topspin that's put on uh, how these stories are told uh, or how these accounts are told. And so it was interesting seeing it from, a, you know, kind of a from an Assyrian historical uh, text where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of things here that do that that converge, but there are question marks. And sometimes in other sources, uh, the question marks become a supernatural event. <laughs> and 
And so maybe it is all true and maybe none of it's true or, you know, there's another explanation for it. Hard to say at, at this point, but it is it is uh, curious at, at the least. So there's this one one bit that you talk about uh, in the book. You, you talk about all, all of these various aspects. But one question I had was throughout the th- during the empire, and of course, there's a lot of conquering and taking over and there's a lot of shared land here. My question I had was, was how distinct at this point, you know, in this kind of, you know, the height of the Syrian empire, how distinct were Assyria and Babylon? You talk about this Babylonianization of sorts of Assyria, and and I'm curious of how that manifested in many components of their culture, especially generationally and downstream, you know, where where does because obviously we have the babylonian empire that that uh that comes online and so i'm wondering where does assyria end and babylonian kind of stuff begin and where's the crossover and and how do we make i guess historically those those distinctions yeah absolutely i think the best way to to conceptualize the relationship between assyria and babylonia is to to think about it in the same terms as as one thinks about the relationship between rome and greece so Rome is this this great conqueror um, state. Uh, Greece is is this 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 harbor of culture and philosophy. Um, the Assyrians, very much like Rome, adopt from from the Babylonians uh, important aspects of the religion. I mentioned that already, uh, and also their literature and their scholarship. So we actually have very few literary texts written in the Assyrian language. Um, the literary and scholarly texts that we find, for example, in Ashurbanipal's famous libraries are almost all written in Babylonian, some of them even in the ancient language of Sumerian. So Ashurbanipal, just to be brief about this um, king uh, uh, who ruled from 669 to 631 BCE, famous for actually having created what one could consider the first universal library in, in, in world history. Uh, some 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 30,000 tablets and fragments uh, have been unearthed at Nineveh uh, that belong to that library. Um, and uh, these texts include uh, famous epics such as uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, hundreds and thousands of omen texts, rituals and incantations, medical treatises, so the earliest large corpus of medical texts that we know is actually uh, from ancient Mesopotamia. These are texts that are written in the Babylonian language. Uh, so the Assyrians very much sort of in, endorse Babylonian culture initially, as I said, perhaps as an antidote to Horian culture. They want to get rid of that. But then really out of a uh, a genuine uh, admiration, it seems, for it. They consider it uh, really the the fountainhead of wisdom, um, and um, this this is something where the Assyrians are really very much in love with Babylonia. At the same time, like with Greece, um, Assyria wants to rule over Babylonia, so they 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 are willing to. Give Babylonian cities all sorts of privileges, tax privileges especially, so that Babylon doesn't have to really pay taxes like other places, and so on and so forth. But they do want to be recognized as the essentially as yeah the the, the rulers, the makers and shakers in the Babylonian South as well. And here the problem arises because the Babylonians from the very beginning, I mean, starts already in the middle of the Syrian period. When Tukunyunoto the first, the first Assyrian king to to conquer Babylon, the Babylonians are not so enchanted with this idea that the Assyrians actually rule over them. And so, what happens uh, after the birth of the Assyrian Empire is that 
again and again, the Assyrians self conquer Babylon and make themselves king of Babylonia. Um, but the uh, Babylonians rebel. They they don't accept it. it happens at the end of of, of the reign of uh, the predecessor of Sargon II, for example. And it happens again during the reign of Sennacherib, um, the king who is most famous actually for this uh, attack on Jerusalem. But for Sennacherib himself, it was probably the um, the the altercation with Babylon that was more important. Um, it was an altercation that was dramatic. It um, began with the rebellion right at the beginning of his reign, and several others followed. Um, at its height, the Babylonians made common cause with the Eastern Elamites, an enemy of Assyria, uh, and even uh, delivered Sennacherib's son, who had been made a king of Babylon, to the Elamites, who probably killed him. At any rate, Sennacherib developed is of a strong hatred of Babylon, it seems, at this point. And eventually, when he conquered Babylon in 689 BCE, um, he entirely destroyed it and describes this destruction in graphic terms, so graphic that it was really unusual, uh, even for Assyrian-style uh, texts, and, and certainly shocking when one considers that this was the, the omphalos of the world and cultural center by excellence. But it's also clear that, I mean, for him, Babylon was still important as a, as a cultural matrix. So in order to somehow cope with this destruction of Babylon, what, what, what Sennacherib tried to do is to, to recreate Babylon and Babylonian culture in Assyria, especially the city of Ashur. So he recreates the, the cultic infrastructure of the god Marduk, the city god of Babylon in Ashur, um, making Ashur, the god of Assyria, the new Marduk, even kind of rewriting the Babylonian epic of creation that features the god Babylonian god Marduk as the great creator god and hero that uh, vanquishes a female chaos monster. Uh, so he, Sennacherib, replaces Marduk in that epic with the god Ashur and so on and so forth. So somewhat ironically makes Assyrian religion much more Babylonian than it had been before. It doesn't really work out though. This is a pretty exciting sort of religious reform uh, that we can trace here. But the power of the cultural sort of image of Babylon is so strong that eventually under Sennacherib's successor, Asahadon, Babylon is being rebuilt. Then there is yet another sort of war with, with Babylon during the reign of Ashurbanipal, uh, the library king. Um, at that time, Ashurbanipal's brother, Shamashabukin, is king of Babylon. So this is also a, a, a king, between, a, a war between brothers. It's a, it's a war between sibling civilizations, a war between brothers. For that reason, perhaps exactly, it's particularly violent. Again, the Assyrians, um, in the end, are victorious. In 648 BCE, Babylon is again destroyed. Shamashabukin dies in the flames of his palace in Babylon after a mission uh, by Asahadon's uh, and uh, by, by, by Asahadon's uh, sister to, to sort of make peace between the two has failed. Um, Assyria prevails once more. But it's the last time for Assyria to prevail in this in this conflict because then, a few decades later, in uh, 626 BCE, it is actually Babylon that will prevail. So then this very last altercation between these two civilizations, um, that's when uh, a new king um, becomes ruler of Babylonia. The Assyrians are um, chased away from there. Um, a king by the name of Nova makes an alliance with the Medes, people of, of, of the East. And together with them, he manages then to conquer Assyria. And then, uh, I mean, uh, really sort of in a deliberate attempt also to 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 wipe out the memory of all these many um, humiliating defeats that Babylon has suffered at the hands of the Assyrians, he now turns the table and he 
destroys in any way. Uh, and and uh, before that, Ashur is being destroyed. So the, the hatred that the Babylonians must have felt that leads to this utter destruction in Assyria uh, between 615 and 612 um, I think can be explained um, through this history. So it's a history of love and hatred at the same time. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting how <clears throat> there's these kind of ebbs and flows that that kind of happen. You, know, you mentioned kind of uh, this 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 kind of in, internal war between the the two the two brothers. Obviously, also in there is is how they conquered Egypt in 671, which is a which is a big big point. But I just want to fast forward to the fall, I guess. So Nineveh's fall is a a big a big piece of this. And between 627 and 605, you kind of classified as a as a type of you know one of the first kind of world war of sorts. Um, I guess the the main question here is what were some of the reasons for the Assyrian Empire's quick and rapid fall? You know, so 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 quickly and so fast. Yeah, so this is really, of course, uh, a question that that historians need to yeah, grapple with. It's a it's a difficult question. The one answer I give you will not be the answer that other scholars may give you. Um, as with all great events in world history, when you think about the actual root causes, it's it's hard to pinpoint uh, the one that really is decisive. Um, so first of all, I mean, I've already alluded to it. The events as such, we actually know pretty well. We know that in so at the death of Ashurbanipal in 631, um, there is internal and kind of uncertainty about succession in Assyria, and this is not for the first time. This we sort of, however, uh, sort of powerful the empire, the Assyrian Empire is. The, the moments of of the death of a king who is so much the linchpin of this whole political system, there is a degree of instability, instability that's that's somewhat dangerous. And um, yeah, um, we see that again unfolding after Ashurbanipal, who has been king for several decades, must have died uh, so very old. Um, how how it, uh, plays out then? So it is the son of his by the name of Ashurbanipal. He he becomes the next king, but he's clearly a plaything of the uh, all-powerful chief eunuch, so, um, an officer administrator um, who has become very powerful in the Syrian Empire, when you saw the eminence gris behind the uh, this this young prince Asher Etelilani. And from early on, Asher Etelilani has to sort of also seems uh, to to fight against a brother of his by the name of of Simshaw uh, Ishkon, who also uh, claims that he would be the legitimate Syrian king. So there is a sort of moment of internal uh, instability that also is already uh, probably um, some kind of a, um, a lack of of, um, of of legitimacy on the part of the Assyrian king from the later reign of Ashurbanipal. Uh, Ashurbanipal is a fascinating king. I could say a lot of things about him. I mentioned the great library that he created. Uh, he created some of the most beautiful Assyrian art, or rather his artists did uh, uh, many beautiful reliefs, uh, for example, the lion hunts at... Um, um, from from Nineveh now exhibited at the British Museum um, among the most famous works of art from from the ancient world as such and rightly so um, there are also some particularly impressive scenes of warfare 
Um, but it's interesting when you read through the lines of some of so you, uh, Ashurbanipal's inscriptions, you can see that, for example, Ashurbanipal never going to war. He was afraid. He, he he made sure that there would be some kind of prophet turning up and saying, no, no, don't go. The goddess Ishtar is going things, to do things for you. And Ashurbanipal stays home. And of course, the Assyrian kings would never go into the fray of the battle, as they claim in the inscriptions. But we know they would be sort of being stand on a nearby hill where battle was fought and and be directly involved. Ashurbanipal stays at home in his palace. So I think this weakened the authority of the Assyrian kings. And then what happens is that in Babylonia, you have suddenly after several years of 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 fighting between Assyrian and Babylonian troops, you have a new king, Nabopolassar, this new king, is probably coming from a family of administrators in the city of Uruk in the south, who were sort of governing this city on behalf of the Assyrian, the erstwhile Assyrian overlord. So this Nabopolassar knows how the Assyrian military and civilian machine works. He knows that pretty well. And that will help him, of course, in his fight against the Assyrians. So Nabopolassar manage, manages to chase the Assyrians out of, of Babylonia. This alone would not have yet really meant that this is the end for Assyria. I mean, earlier occasions the Babylonians had rebelled as well. But now the additional factor is the Medes, so these eastern people. And here again, in a way, you could argue the Assyrians shoved their own grave because they were the ones uh, that... Brought order into the areas um, where those Medes had been living. The Medes were essentially a semi nomadic um, group of pretty disjointed tribes. And when the Assyrians in the uh, later 8th and 7th centuries BCE started to, to, to campaign in the areas, they made sure that they would be better organized. So they would actually be able to, to send taxes and tribute. But of course, that led to a situation where the Medes at some point were able to really organize on their own and then um, kind of suddenly turn against their overlords, the Assyrians. So the Medes and the, the Babylonians suddenly now operate together. This brings onto the plane the Egyptians, um, previously actually, of course, opponents of Assyria. I mentioned the conquest of Egypt by the Assyrians in, 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 in 671. I mean, one of the great triumphs of Assyria when Assyria becomes so bigger and larger than ever before. But now it seems like the uh, Egyptians are afraid that the Babylonians might take over from the, from the Assyrians and become the, the great new power. And so suddenly the Egyptians um, find themselves um, fighting on the part of the Assyrians. And this is where I think the term world war becomes, um, of course, it's anachronistic. And I mean, there's no overseas yes. parties involved. I mean, that's <laughs> obvious, but it is really a major um it, it, It's I mean, many different players from, from different continents. Um, Involved. I mean, the Levant becomes involved. Um, the Judean king Josiah is being defeated when an Egyptian army crosses the Levant in 609. Eventually, the Babylonians uh, sent the armies as far away as Zorata in the north. Uh, the Elamites, the eastern Elamites, likewise participate. So it's a large number of different actors. It's also an enormously brutal war. Um, uh, the, the back and forth in Babylonia. Uh, cities of uh, siding with the Assyrians and then with the Babylonians must have been a bloody affair. And then, of course, we reach this point where the combined armies of the Medes and the Babylonians conquer uh, the Assyrian capitals. First, Ashur, which is a major blow to Assyrian um, uh, religious identity, especially the Ashur temple is destroyed. And then eventually Nineveh in 612. 
BCE, an event that is uh, referenced in the biblical book of Nahum. Uh, the, the prophet Nahum talks about it, and also quite extensively in the Greek tradition. So this is also a world event. It's something that everyone at the time really um, apparently finds extremely significant. And it probably was. I mean, this great empire, this first empire is essentially wiped out. And we sort of have a lot of information, also archaeological information. So, for example, in one of the gates of Nineveh, this is this big city uh, with a with a wall 12 kilometers or so some eight miles long, the massive city. Jonah claims it had 100,000 uh, people living there. It's probably not unrealistic. In this gate, uh, archaeologists found the remains of the Assyrian soldiers and, and other Assyrians who were were killed by by the onslaught of the Babylonian Median troops there, still sort of in the contorted positions in which they they were were killed there. So they, the problem, the strategical problem for Nineveh is that you have this large wall, you have these massive gates, they're very big, and they are very difficult to defend. So it's now suddenly uh, a strategic liability, and that enables the Medes and the Babylonians to conquer Nineveh. And this is where the Assyrian king sits, and uh, that king, Sinsha Ishkon, the last Assyrian king, is killed is of, after a coda, a historical coda. Another Assyrian uh, prince um, remains in office in the western city of Haran for another three years, but then he disappears from the scene as well. That's the end. Uh, scores of Assyrians, hundreds of thousands perhaps, are being killed or deported. Assyria is no longer um, a geopolitical entity. So this is the political story. Um, now, the question is, is, is politics here a mere epiphenomenon? Are the underlying root causes for this downfall different? I mean, one of my Yale colleagues, uh, Harvey Weiss, has recently argued together with a number of, of other scholars that climate change is, again, the real culprit. Um, and I think um, his team has shown successfully that, in fact, uh, in the 7th century BCE saw a decline again in rainfall. The, the, the data seems quite clear in this regard. My problem with this explanation is that this massive decline starts much earlier. Essentially, it always starts in the late 8th century, and then it, it exacerbates in the early 7th century. So the Assyrians cope quite well with this greater degree of aridity for, for decades. So I can't really accept that... Um, that this is the main reason. I think there is an additional point here to be made that the loss of Babylonia, where you have this, um, this, 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 where you don't rely on rain-fed agriculture but have uh, artificial irrigation, that this this was a problem for Syria. But for example, at Ashur, at the site of Ashur, um, archaeologists have also found a lot of traces of this destruction layer from seven from six hundred and fourteen, uh, including. Um, grain deposits um some one meter or so four four three to four feet high in several places several palaces and in 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 in, in temples doesn't look to me like a place that has suffered from from a major uh, famine or anything uh, caused by by insufficient harvest so to me i think it's really on one hand it's this perfect storm uh the fact that the Medes and the babylonians uh, together uh, create this coalition. The fact that Nabopolassar, the Babylonian king, knows the Assyrian administration and uh, the way the Assyrian military works so well, because he has grown up as part of it, if you wish, as an, uh, so a member of a family that worked for the Assyrians in the south. And the Medes too, I mean, they experienced the Assyrians, they have seen how they operate, and they have uh, certainly learned their lesson. 
So I think this is important. And I also believe that the leadership crisis, this, I mean, this King Ashurbanipal, it's kind of a populist among la lettre. When you always have this discrepancy between the body politic and the body natural. So each Assyrian king, of course, presents himself as the great hunter, the great campaigner, and so on and so forth. But they don't usually put these these claims to public sort of to, to, to public display. Ashurbanipal does. So he 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 engages uh, in in fights against lions uh, in an arena near Nineveh, where of course everything is kind of staged. He claims that he goes to war as this great warrior, but he never goes to war. So I think he's being perceived towards the later part of his reign, when, when things start to get warm, he's being perceived as a weak ruler. And when then uh, he dies and his successors are likewise not really able to, to muster universal support, it's a problem. And then, of course, we have the general problem of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, uh, another archaeologist, Ariel Bach, has called Assyrian Empire without mission. Um, so it's not like they they bring religion, culture, anything sort of to to, to other places. Um, essentially, that's nice because they also don't expect these other places to adopt their cultural and religious ideas. But they also don't have that much to offer except for the fact that these other places will be safe and secure as long as they pay a significant amount of taxes and and, and accept simply that the Assyrians call the shots. But that's not good enough, uh, it seems, to, to create a feeling of loyalty. So when uh, Assyria is suddenly in dire straits in the late 7th century, no one except for Egypt and the Manians also, I mean, Eastern people also fight uh, with the Assyrians. No one else seems really particularly keen on supporting the Assyrians. So that also doesn't really help them. And that's then that then leads to the end. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how there's all these kind of coalitions and then people working, you know, you know against uh, one of the empires, and and again, just as we've said at different points, you know how quickly it it was uh, able to fall. So after the the fall, then, um, which is you know again, as we said, kind of you know, not terribly sudden, like it happened in a couple months, but you know, relative to other, I guess, like kind of the Roman Empire or something. Um, how how did Assyria's legacy, their culture, and their history? become subsumed under Babylonian, as we've mentioned, and maybe some Persian uh, uh, aspects as well? Or or was it just entirely forgotten? Or was it kind of a mix of mo- uh, both? Some, you know, remnants stayed with other empires, but then other pieces of we, we've lost to history. Um, you know, how, how, how was Assyria just used as a reference point for maybe other uh, future empires? So uh, Assyrian statehood really comes to an end in 612 BCE. And even uh, cuneiform writing in Assyria stops at this point. So that too indicates that this really is a moment of, of, of collapse. At the same time, it would be wrong to say that everything is gone. Um, so in Assyria, um, certain elements of Assyrian culture continue, uh, Assyrian religion lives on. The god Ashur and his wife Sherua are still worshipped in a temple in the city of Ashur in the 2nd century AD. So uh, even at that time, uh, there's still people uh, living in that city who, who, who um, adhere to, to the cult of Ashur. Um, at places like, like Arbela, probably uh, this is the case as well. Um, but for example, when um, the Persian king Darius III um, in uh, 333 uh, sets out um, 
for the Battle of Gaugamela near Arbela. He 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 does so from Arbela. So the city, the Caesarian city, is still a city that is not entirely destroyed. Um, but Assyria, of course, at this point is no longer an agent of of history. But the people living in this in this area are spectators of of the great battle between the Persians and the Greeks under Alexander. So this is really in this regard. This really is is a big. Uh, yeah, transformation and, and change, um, and also an ending. Um, at the same time, of course, I mean, empire is is a shape shifting phenomenon, and um, the Babylonian king who conquers Assyria along with the Medes, uh, this Nabopolassar, um, of course, inherits in a way this empire of the Assyrians, and creates then what is known to modern scholars as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and whose most famous king is Nebuchadnezzar II, the king who uh, who, who uh, takes the, uh, the Judeans into the Babylonian exile. Um, and I mean, you see, yeah, this is essentially following the Syrian precedent. Uh, deportation is a practice, of course, that uh, the Assyrians previously um, undertook on a regular basis. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar II does the same thing. And um, in many regards, of course, this Neo-Babylonian Empire draws on um, techniques of power that the Assyrians created, including, for example, the fact that the palace uh, administration under the Neo-Babylonian kings is very similar to that of the of, of the Neo-Assyrian uh, kings of the imperial kings of Assyria. Um, at the same time, the Neo-Babylonian kings, of course, also stress that they are uh, critical of these Assyrians, after all, had destroyed Babylon so many times. And it's sort of ironic that it's under the last king of the Neo Babylonian Empire, king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, that the Syrian elements are, come to the foremost. Obviously, this Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting character. You would serve until 539 BCE. Um, and he hails from the city of Haran. Uh, this is the place where the last Assyrian sort of king prince. Uh, was defeated in 609 BCE. Uh, so in a way, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes from, from an area that is it's in and of itself Assyrian, and he uh, presents himself in many levels actually like an Assyrian king. So even the iconography, the way his stelae look like, uh, the royal uh, coats that he wears, all this is quite Assyrian. And he mentioned several Assyrian kings approvingly in his inscriptions. Um, altogether, though, I would say the Neo Babylonian uh, Empire has a has a very mixed uh, relationship with Assyria. This changes with the empire that comes then, and is often considered, uh, in fact, the, the first great empire in the world, and that's the Persian Empire. Uh, that begins with Cyrus II in 539 uh, when he conquers Babylon and ends then with again a conquest of of, of, of Babylon by Alexander the Great in 331. Um, Initially, we can see that uh, Persian kings um, adopt, for example, artistic conventions and practices of the Babylonians. A recent find in Persepolis, one of the great Persian capitals in, in, in Iran, um, has revealed um, a gate built very much like the famous Ishtar gate from Babylon with this glazed bricks and the same kind of lines and 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 bulls uh, depicted on them that you find uh, on this Babylonian gate from Babylon. But then very quickly, um, Persian art changes very much and becomes much more Assyrian. So what uh, Persian art is really famous for, I mean, places like Persepolis or Pasargadeh and so on, um, 
in fact are these large relief cycles um, that show the king and and groups of tribute bearers that very much Assyrian style uh, all these big bull colossi these massive um, figures of of winged bulls and lions that were created by the Assyrians uh, sometimes up to 50 tons uh, in, in weight uh, and um, the Babylonians didn't have them so the Persians actually um, create an art that looks much more Assyrian than than what the previous empire, the Babylonian Empire, did. Mm-hmm. So here we see continuity of um, motifs created first by the Assyrians, and of course again a continuity also of of the idea of empire. Um, this seems like the Persians, in many regards, drew more on the model of the Assyrians than on the model of the Babylonians. And of course, the Persians then have the model again sort of emulated by later empires, starting with the Hellenistic Seleucids in Babylonia, and then the Parthians, the Sasanians, the Abbasids, the Ottomans, and so on and so forth. I already talked about this. And um, of course, Assyria recedes into the background uh, as empire follows uh, empire, but it's still of course, the first in this chain of empires, that though the empire that stands at the very beginning. Um, and uh, it's also remembered um, in the Bible. Um, you can talk about that perhaps a little more in a moment. And also in the classical uh, tradition um, in, in by, by Greek and Roman historians. And when you read Dante's on monarchy, uh, for example, he says the first of two to gain the prize of empire was King Ninus of Nineveh and uh, of Assyria. So uh, even there in, 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 these, in these traditions, Assyria remains the reference point for, for the emergence of this, this uh, idea of empire. And of course, this is important. This is important to keep in mind. Um, I mean, when you think about his, history, um, People have lived in empires over long stretches of time. Uh, ever since the Assyrians, the empire is a very common uh, political form of of, of uh, living and, and and organizing a state, uh, for better or worse. I mean, I'm not saying it was it was necessarily uh, in every respect a great thing. It was probably also in every respect a terrible thing. Uh, I'm just descriptive here. Uh, empire does. Um, I mean, the idea of empire is 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 an enormously powerful one up to our uh, own time, even though now um, where you have empires, they will usually no longer claim to be empire. Empire, of course, has now a really bad name, but uh, the idea of empire, I think, has, has not ceased to um, yeah, to to excite political rulers all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is a uh, an antiquated term, one that people get very uncomfortable using, but I think, you know, for a while it was, you know, used that way. You mentioned, uh, obviously, the Bible, and we've been mentioning it at different points throughout the conversation. So I want to just kind of land here for a minute. Um, so obviously, I, I mean, I, my uh, introduction to the Assyrian Empire was obviously through, you know, my own studies, you know, um, in seminary a million years ago. <laughs> and I think a lot of people will know about many of these names or figures or things like that from you know for some people in the united states maybe from sunday school or bible study or if they've gone to higher education and and learned about this and i guess the question i have here is is that (laughs) obviously the bible is not a history book it is about jewish 
history, but it is not, you know, exclusively that. It is a lot of different genres. You have poetry and narrative and prophetic books and apocalyptic books and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but how much do you, do we feel, I guess, from a historical perspective that um, the the Jewish people took some of these ideas that were around the time in Mesopotamia and kind of did their own version of it, right? So if you look at the Deuteronomic code, right? So from Deuteronomy, uh, it's part of the, the the Jewish, you know, Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, a lot of that stuff, as you mentioned, in the book seems to have a precursor of, uh, I think you mentioned it earlier, some of the code that the Assyrians were using. Um, you know, and and of course you can see historically if there's a, a people group that's maybe a little bit older or 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 was using this before we start seeing this with the Jewish uh, uh, people, um, does that maybe say that they were influenced or it's a reference point or it's just outright plagiarized? What can we say about that? Um, same thing here also with, with Jonah and Nineveh. So many people know the story of Jonah gets swallowed by a whale, sits in there for three days, you know, but he's... His whole point uh, was to uh, go to Nineveh and say, you know, he was a prophet and to tell these people how they were in sin and, you know, they needed to repent and all these things from that, from the Jewish perspective. But again, that story seems to have a type of, you know, kind of copy and paste from another story that's very similar. And a lot of these things happen um, in, in this in this region at this time. And so I guess what, what can we say about some of the accuracy historically about reading about this kind of crossover with the Assyrians uh, that we see in the Bible where, where someone's reading the Bible and can say, well, this is one perspective or this is one point of view, which is the Jewish point of view, but that's not the whole uh, kind of uh, historical lens here. And there is other perspectives that maybe have more or less or or you know, equal validity here. So how how do how do you think is the best and most accurate way to kind of broach this with the Assyrian historical accounts with kind of the biblical accounts of the Jewish account? Yeah, it's a big question, of course. Um, what I think one can say is that um, the Assyrian period, the period of the Assyrian Empire, is the first period in the formation of the Hebrew Bible, and we can see that from the fact I already mentioned that. Um, the information that the Second Kings, for example, provides about the Syrian kings such as Tiglapileza, Sennacherib, is very accurate. Um, it's very clear that um, even though these these stories uh, about those kings and their interactions with the Israelites and the Judeans uh, were later uh, transformed, and uh, that there is a theological agenda that was sometimes uh, um, projected onto them, that. Um, this is actual sort of history that um, the Judeans and Israelites must have had chronological texts in which they would have recorded the interactions with the Assyrians. And it's also, I mean, certainly not by chance that uh, the earliest prophets in the Bible essentially are all um, from the time of the late uh, yeah, of the Assyrian Empire, so Amos and so on, 8th century, essentially. Um, I think that is important. Um, so one thing we, we can say here is that some certain things that the Bible has to say about interactions, Israel, Judah, and Syria are actually quite accurate. Um, I think, though, what is probably more important and more significant is 
this question of of influence that goes sort of beyond and that in sort of also has something i mean influence that that impacts religious and theological ideas um and i do think one one can trace them uh, in in the bible now it's important to keep in mind that the Assyrians did not ever try to force conquered people into worshipping their own gods, uh, that is the Assyrian gods. Uh, in fact, I would have been offended had anyone started, in Jerusalem started to build a temple of Ashur. Uh, this was nothing that Assyrians were interested in. Um, what they did, however, was that they imposed on the people uh, they conquered uh, loyalty oaths on behalf of the Assyrian kings. Um, and we know that because we actually have the, these oaths themselves. We have succession treaties from Assyria itself, but also from places in the West, including a place not that far away from 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 Israel and Judah, Tel Tainat on the Orontes River, um, where we have uh, detailed lists of oaths that um, Assyrian vessels and uh, anyone essentially. Um, had to swear on behalf of the Assyrian kings. And um, it is very likely that such loyalty oaths were also imposed on, on the king in Jerusalem and on the elites in Jerusalem, that they had to swear these oaths as well. And what has been uh, observed, uh, not by me, but by, by earlier scholars already, is that the loyalty oaths and also some of the curses accompanying them, um, known from these Assyrian Succession treaties uh, are structurally and also in certain regards in terms of their content quite similar to where well, the text that you already mentioned, namely the so-called Deuteronomic Code, that is a law code um, found in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the last book of the Torah, um, which is ascribed to Moses, but um, I mean, assuming sort of looking at it from an historical angle, uh, is clearly uh, later uh, than wherever we would place Moses historically, um, and uh, is most likely really influenced by these Assyrian texts. And what is now really revolutionary and striking uh, about these parallels is that um, this is not plagiarizing. This is this is rewriting in very intelligent and and uh, really uh, incisive ways, revolutionary ways, in fact, because. Whereas in the Assyrian um, treaties, um, the vessels are supposed to love the Assyrian king and protect him and, and all that. In Deuteronomy, uh, everyone is, said, um, is, is, is requested to love God. God takes the place of the Assyrian king. Um, and we find even pretty detailed um, parallels, for example, uh, there is a clause in the Assyrian treaties um, that if uh, your sister or brother or father or mother or son or daughter ever uh, starts uh, to ask that you worship other gods, then you must kill them. It's a pretty brutal statement found in the Bible. It is probably a rewriting of a similar clause in the Assyrian succession treaties that ask uh, everyone who swears these loyalty oaths to the Assyrian king that he or she um, notify the king if your sister or brother, your parents, your children, or for that matter, a prophet or a dream uh, interpreter. And these are also mentioned in this passage in Deuteronomy, I forgot to mention them, if any of these people ever sort of say you should be loyal to another king. Um, so the parallels are close, but the Bible turns the 
sort of political focus on the Assyrian king into a theological model where uh, God is king. And that's really a very significant um, shift. So Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. When you say it's not a plagiarizing, but it's a type of rewriting, is it is it just kind of like um, a point of emphasis or 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 swapping out kind of the players in the in the order of things? So instead of about a political thing, it's about a deity thing, right? In terms of for for God as opposed to uh, a party or or a king or something like that. Is that what you mean by rewriting, or 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 how do how do you expand on that on on how maybe it was rewritten of sorts? I mean, it's both. I mean, of course, it's uh, on one hand, it's it's possibly sort of the beginning of, of I mean, monotheism, or the beginnings of monotheism is a very complicated question. And yeah. this is not the only factor that plays a role. But I do think, I mean, the, the Hebrew Bible um, is being created in the age of empire, with the Assyrian being the first. The age of empire, uh, of course, uh, brings to the fore the idea of one king being in charge of the world. Uh, what the Bible does is that it transforms this idea and it claims now, uh, rather than one king being in charge, instead it's one God. One God is, there's only one God you, you can worship. You can't worship any other gods. This is the revolutionary act and it comes to the religious dimension of these texts. But of course, when you say that all your loyalty is owed to to God alone, this has an important political message as well. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, I mean, the text says very clearly, Regarding the king, okay, well, you can have a king. I mean, speaking to Israel now in Deuteronomy, but that king cannot have many horses or many women, and he should not actually own a lot of silver. All those things that, of course, the Assyrian king was famous for, and any imperial king would claim for himself. So there is this idea of a theocracy, of God really being being the the actual king. And I mean, ironically, when you look at Assyria, this is how Assyrian uh, sort of history starts. At the beginning, it is Ashur is the king. But I think uh, the transformation that takes place here in the first millennium is not drawing on this idea of Ashur being king, but really rather on the idea that there is this earthly king, the emperor king, the Assyrian king, and that um, the image of that king is projected onto the image of God. And you could say that's kind of problematic. Um, it doesn't sound like a great idea if God is like the Assyrian king. But it's also important to sort of remember this is an act of liberation. And I think when one considers in this way, then, of course, even such a statement like the one about um, killing your brothers and sisters when they don't worship the right God, I think this becomes more humane when you when you put it in the historical context that's also why i think these comparisons within the bible and um and mesopotamian culture in general do not have to threaten the believers i mean i want to sort of really address this issue here believers yeah. and non-believers and so on but i think for believers it it must be a relief to know that uh, the background of of rather crude uh and cruel uh, demands like this one that i just quoted that the background here is found in an attempt to um, to liberate yourself from an aggressive uh, imperial ruler. Um, so this is something I would say is is really significant. Now, on a completely different level, you ask about Jonah, and I mean this business with Deuteronomy and the Assyrian succession treaties. This is this is not my idea. This is this is I should also say it's not accepted by everyone that there is this relationship. So there remain a few scholars who who say no, this isn't the case. The parallels are not close enough. So it remains something uh, under debate. Um, the issue with Jonah is, is sort of a pet theory of myself. And I mean, I can put it out for people to believe it or not. Um, sure. So 
but it gives me a chance at least to brief, briefly also talk about Israeli women in this case, royal women. And you had asked me about patriarchy, and so I can um, get back to that very briefly. Yeah. Essentially, Assyria is a very patriarchal society, and the Assyrian king list, for example, includes only the names of male kings. But we know from a variety of sources that on several occasions, women were also very powerful, influenced the kings or even became sort of regents. One was the wife of King Sennacherib, who was very much in charge during the reign of her son, Asahadon. So I, I won't get into that now, uh, but it's an exciting story. And I um, mean, she even built a palace for him and things like that. Another one, though, is an earlier queen, a queen by the name of Samuramad, who was the wife of an Israeli king, Shamshi Adad V, and the mother of another, Adad Nerari III, and was of active around 800 BCE. And we know that this was a really very powerful woman, because during the early years of when her son was king, inscriptions were written in which claimed that she went with her sons on military campaigns, which is unheard of uh, before and after. Very unusual. Uh, she had a stealer dedicated to herself as the first woman among many, many other similar stealers dedicated uh, in honor of Assyrian kings and administrators at Ashur, and uh, some additional evidence for her really being very powerful. This queen uh, became kind of the nucleus of, of a whole set of later legends, um, mostly known to us from Greek tradition, actually, where she has metamorphosed into a figure named Semiramis. And basically, the, what the Greek sources say about her is that the Semiramis was born as the daughter of a Syrian goddess, Daketo, in Ashkelon, and the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. Her mother, um, ashamed of having having born her out of a union with a mortal man, threw herself into a lake and turned into a divine mermaid, took on features of a fish in other word, words. Semiramis then grows up, uh, being nourished by doves and then being adopted by shepherds, and in fact has her name according to the legend because it means something like dove. Eventually, she also turns into doves, so doves are important for this whole story. Is found in among these shepherds by an Assyrian official named Onis, brought to Assyria, discovered by the Assyrian king when she shows herself to be a great uh, strategist uh, when the Assyrians try to conquer the city of Bactra in, in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, the Assyrian king forces Onis to commit suicide, marries Semiramis himself. This king then dies, and then Semiramis woods on her own, and essentially becomes this great figure that creates the Assyrian Empire. So in this later legend, it's a woman who essentially creates the empire, an empire in later tradition even larger than the actual Assyrian Empire, ranging from Ethiopia to India, so modeled on later empires, actually. Um, so this legend, of course, isn't historically accurate, but it draws on this uh, figure of Semiramis, who becomes king, queen in Nineveh, um, in Assyria. Now, when you look at the story of Jonah, at first glance, you may not see why there is any connection here with this legend. But Jonah means dove. That's what the name says. And there are all these connections in the Semiramis legend with doves. Um, Jonah's um, greatest feat, of course, is that he is being swallowed by this great fish, stays in the belly of that fish for three days, and then is back out on, on dry land again. Um, later on considered sort of prefiguration of Jesus's three days in the tomb. Um, and uh, then there's the connection with the Eastern Mediterranean and with the city of Nineveh, where Semiramis ends her, her, her days. 
So, so there is actually a lot that um, these stories have in common. So, so the Dove connection, the the thing that that Semiramis has been has been the daughter of this divine mermaid that becomes sort of a fish when she throws herself into the uh, into the sea. Uh, Semiramis is born in Ashkelon, which is close to the place where John allegedly uh, went on the ship that uh, brought him uh, onto the Mediterranean after he had failed to go to Nineveh, which was what God had demanded of him. And then when he is eventually sped out, he does go to Nineveh and ends his days in Nineveh, just like Semiramis. Um, again, um, you could say that's just fortuitous and uh, these parallels are not sufficient um, to establish any kind of borrowing. But for me, these four parallels are strong enough to say that can't really be by chance. Now, why um, and how the story of Semiramis, which which clearly had Eastern origins, how and why and by whom it was transformed in the story of Jonah, where you have this sort of female Assyrian queen being turned into male, a biblical prophet. Um, why that happens is unclear. Um, we know nothing really about the author of the book of Jonah. Was that meant to be funny? Was that kind of a satire? Uh, was it deadly serious? Uh, it's really not clear. But it's also interesting that both these stories are really sort of set within within empire. I mean, um, Semiram is clearly the first imperial queen. Jonah operates within, uh, well, uh, an imperial worldview where he's sort of set to to travel to Nineveh, but doesn't uh, instead wants to go to Tartessus, which is in Spain and ends up in Nineveh anyway. This is very different from other biblical prophets where everything is very narrow and very focused on Israel and Judah and, and the other places playing a really important role. So this is another parallel. So I do think in order to understand the story of Jonah, one needs to keep in mind in one's background, uh, in one's head, this, this story of, of, of this Assyrian queen. Semiram is a story that goes back to an actual Assyrian queen whose name was Samur Ramad. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, again, kind of like what I was saying, it, it's hard to sometimes, I think, for people to, to remember that, you know, each culture is going to have their own history, their own accounts. Um, what's fascinating to me, I guess, is the kind of not quite comparative history, but how there's overlap with all of these things, right? Because they're obviously, you know, I guess, it, you know, maybe as an example is, you know, if you were to read about, you know, the Second World War, well, you could read about it from the German perspective, you could read about it from the British perspective, the American perspective, a Japanese, you know, and you're going to get crossover, but you're going to get you know, a different vantage point, right? And, and you know, I think that there's a, you know, it's appropriate to have some type of humility, I guess, of sorts of saying like, you know, there's different vantage points, there's different points of view. Um, you know, of course, people, I guess, could, you know, argue the philosophical, you know, question of which is the correct reality, which, you know, <laughs> it's all perceptions in some ways, but I think it is important to know there are some actual facts of events that actually occurred, which I guess the last question I have is, is is sort of along those lines. I, I was surprised to to read this. I, I remember when this happened, um, and I was absolutely just gutted about it when it when it when it occurred. When it, in the towards the end of the book, you talk about sort of this kind of what you call this second destruction of Assyrian artifacts by ISIS. I believe it was in 2015. Uh, I could be wrong, um, and. And I remember when this happened, and and it was heartbreaking because you have, you know, items that are from th literally thousands and thousands of years ago, 
And when they're gone, they're gone. And there's so many things that we could understand and know, and, and not to, to mention for the, the legacy of, uh, of folks still in that area. Um, so I guess a few kind of sub questions on this, um, you know, kind of just talk about that event, what was destroyed, how can we better protect Assyrian artifacts? Um, do we know of any uh, descendants from Assyria that are currently living? Um, or, you know, is that just too far? Uh, and I guess what are the uh, ongoing efforts to understand and protect and preserve, you know, Assyrian history? Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Of course, the events of 2015 um, were heartbreaking. So what had happened was that ISIS had um, taken the city of, of Mosul um, in 2014 um, and from there had uh, embarked on a campaign of, of massive cultural cleansing, uh, as one can legitimately uh, call it, uh, which included, um, it took them a while, but eventually included the destruction of some key Assyrian sites. Uh, Mosul is just on the other side of, of Nineveh, uh, opposite, I mean, Nineveh is on the opposite side of Mosul, uh, in between is the Tigris River. So um, that was very unfortunate. Um, ISIS started off with destroying a mosque, actually, on top of one of the mounds at Nineveh. Um, but then in 2015, um, began to also attack Assyrian monuments, including, for example, uh, the uh, massive bull colossi in one of the gates of Nineveh. Other gates uh, of the city were destroyed as well, were really literally bulldozed. In the case of this bull colossus, uh, electric drills were used. Um, the throne room of uh, King Sennacherib, of which some reliefs were still in situ, still in place at Nineveh, uh, was entirely raised to the ground. Um, the museum in Mosul, which displayed many artifacts from the Assyrian period, was destroyed and the artifacts hacked into pieces. The site of Kala or Nimrud was uh, dynamited uh, with, with barrel bombs uh, so that the throne room of, of King Ashurnasirpur II was, was destroyed. Even the, the ziggurat, the temple tower, the massive structure was bulldozed away. So it was really disaster. Other sites were affected as well. Um, now one can of course ask why did they do that? It seems like um, unnecessary uh, effort to destroy ruins essentially. And I think it is important also for us uh, scholars to think about what happened here. And um, well, ISIS issued a magazine, Dabiq, in which they outlined their bloody ideology. And they have an interesting article uh, in 2015, anonymous article, uh, where they where they justify these attacks on the cultural heritage. And they, they make essentially three points. On one hand, they say they do it because they wanted to, to annoy the West, of course, always a main enemy of, of uh, these totalitarian Islamist terrorists. And... Um, they were quite successful with that. And I mean, the irony here is the uh, discovery of Assyrian sites in the 19th century and much of the archaeological work uh, in Assyria, also in, in southern Iraq and Babylonia, was conducted by, by Western um, yeah, scholars and adventurers and so on and so forth. Um, and even though in, in, in the past decades and since the essentially beginning of the 20th century, uh, local people had more agency than before, it always remained to a certain extent a Western thing to do this. And it is interesting, of course, that this worked. I mean, the, 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 or you, you said yourself you were horrified, and many people in the West were horrified when they saw these images, much more horrified probably than they were when they heard about 
um, for example, these these terrible things that ISIS did to to the Yazidis, also enslaving and killing and raping women and whatever else there there, there would be. Um, Tells us also something about uh, yeah the way that the West reacts to the news. Um, so this was one thing they wanted, and I mean, uh, this was some extent of in order to recruit more people because this this assault on the West in every regard is is it was probably seen as a recruiting tool. Ironically, they used with these videos they displayed of 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 these destructions. They showed it in videos and so on. They used. Um, sort of technologies of, of media technologies, very very Western in 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 style, and I mean showed everything sort of in in, in the form of these images, which otherwise of course anathema in Islam and so on. There were certain contradictions, but still, it, this was one thing. Another thing was that they wanted to make sure that um, people in the Middle East would not draw on these ancient civilizations, Assyrian, Babylonian, whatever. Um, as a, a mark of identity. These were pre-Islamic civilizations and as such anathema to them again, because all that counts for ISIS is of course Islam. Everything that isn't Islam is is bad. And if uh, I mean and the people in these areas sort of uh, feel them like they have a connection with Assyria or Babylonia, that's not a good thing. They need to get rid of it. And it is also again true that the, the nation building efforts in places like Syria or Iraq, you know, those pretty artificial states uh, created uh, on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire uh, to a certain degree by Western powers uh, in the wake of World War I, um, that they, uh, I mean, that the rulers of, of these uh, emerging states uh, did make uh, the ancient pre-Islamic civilizations so one of the um, of, of, of the core ingredients of, of an emerging national identity. So this was important for nation building, and that was something ISIS wanted to deconstruct. So, so these would be uh, elements that that ISIS was was keen on on getting rid of. And of course, then there was the additional sort of official religious idea that these were images of 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 of, of um, gods and, and 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 demons, and and because this was was unacceptable for Islam, uh, it hadn't all this had to go. But actually, most of them weren't deities and no one worshipped them anymore. So it isn't exactly particularly a convincing argument. At any rate, I mean, this happened uh, as long as ISIS was in charge in Mosul, especially, uh, and also in a few other places in Syria. Uh, ISIS also engaged in, in massive acts of looting. Um, they, for example, um, dug massive, a massive a system of tunnels underneath this mount of Nabi Yunus at Nineveh, where they had uh, blown up this mosque on top and took uh, artifacts from there uh, to sell them on, on, on the uh, antiquities markets. Um, that was one way for them to finance their uh, activities. Uh, so this was another thing they did. They essentially stayed in power in Mosul until 2016, and then uh, Iraqi forces with, with allied forces from other countries who took the city in a very bloody battle. And since then, uh, slowly but steadily, uh, efforts have been made to, of course, first and foremost, to rebuild Mosul, which had been entirely destroyed, especially the old city but also to somehow check on the antiquities there and, and see what needed to be done, what could be done. And it is actually quite striking. I mean, considering the, the, the extent of the damage and also the brutality with which ISIS ruled in Mosul, really unprecedented brutality in every respect, um, that so a few years after this happened, uh, the first Western archaeologists returned to the area and started again to 
I mean, to 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 document the damage, but also sort of to to uh, do some excavation work. Um, so, for example, at Nineveh, uh, a German team working along with Iraqi colleagues um, started to explore these tunnels that ISIS had built underneath Nebi Yunus, and in uh, the process, uncovered among other things. Uh, a palace of King Asahadon and the throne room of that palace with two wow. uh two two thrones. Very exciting. And we don't know for whom the wow. second was, either for this Queen Mother Nakia or for the son of the King Ashurbanipal. It's not quite clear. But it is very exciting. They found many new tablets. The the gates were uh, explored, new 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 texts were found there as well. Um uh, Attempts have been made to secure the rubble from Kalach and um, in the Mosul Museum, for example, to reassemble some of the destroyed statues and inscriptions. So this has been going on. But I think one thing that's very vital and very important, and, and several of my colleagues are working in this uh, respect, um, hard in Iraq is, is the late, I mean, we, we need the local stakeholders to get involved. So it needs to be the local people who consider the, the Syrian heritage and, and the heritage in general of ancient Mesopotamia really as something they are closely connected with that they, um, that, that, well, it's something important for their identity, but also maybe in the future something that may draw tourists to these areas of course this is a long-term prospect um i mean i've just been in iraq in in, in last year in baghdad and i can't see that uh, mass tourism is returning to the country that soon sure. but but again i mean some things change more quickly than one thinks and so there have been initiatives one uh, named the al Nahrain initiative which is which is spearheaded by a professor at uh, UCL in London, Eleanor Robson, who received a sig pretty significant grant to involve local stakeholders in the dissemination of knowledge about ancient Mesopotamia in Iraq. Um, other Iraqis are being being self-invited um, to London to learn about uh, conservation techniques and restoration techniques, because of course, I mean, restoration and uh, uh, is 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 what at the given in, in, at this time is is really very much needed, and um, I mean the structure is so enormous that it's unlikely that um, everything can be reassembled. Much is lost forever. That's also clear. But I mean, again, the irony is uh, archaeology in general, in in it of itself, is is a destructive act activity anyway. So that yeah. wherever you dig, even even uh, when you when you really document what you do very well, you you put away uh, the layers uh, on top and they are no longer there then. I mean, this is the one opportunity to study that. Now, by virtue of ISIS having destroyed certain areas, you will suddenly have access to others. And so uh, this destruction work has in a somewhat ironic and perverse way enabled us to gain new insights about this area. And so this is, of course, you asked me about to, to, to um, conclude with a few thoughts on um, the future um work on Assyria and what we can expect in the future to happen so one nice thing about the field of of archaeology in which I am so for which which I work is that um there's always more stuff um because people in the ancient East wrote on clay um there are these hundreds of thousands of texts that they leave uh, that they left and that essentially may be broken or so but because clay is more or less indestructible where you where you dig in in these areas in Assyria and Babylonia elsewhere you will find texts you will find architectural remains as well of course you will find private houses you will find temples and palaces and so on so ongoing excavation will produce more 
texts. And of course, there's much more to learn about Assyrian history, whether it's the imperial period, whether it's these transition periods, these dark ages that I mentioned. I'm sure we can expect more uh, tablets uh, to come to the fore and, and tell us more. I mean, just a few years ago, in, last year, I think, in a place Marda, named Mardamam in northeastern, north, northwestern Iraq, a large archive of texts was found from the Middle Assyrian period again. And, and um, so uh, my work in, in Baghdad, for example, when I went in, in last year, is on unpublished texts from Ashur, uh, from the Middle Assyrian uh, palace archive. So there is this dimension, of course, of, of new finds. In this respect, we are in the same position as Egyptologists. They always also have new stuff and in a better position than classicists uh, whose corpus isn't exactly growing the same way as ours is. So this is one of the really exciting uh, aspects about archaeology. And it's the first half of history. I mean, this is also something that's not as marginal as it is usually perceived, I would say. And the other one, of course, is that um, new questions need to be asked. Uh, the textual material is already available. I mean, in these these tens and, and hundreds, actually hundreds of thousands of texts, many of them need to be read. I mean, many are in, in, in museums and collections all over the world. I hear here we have the Lea Babylonian collection. About two-thirds of its roughly 35,000 uh, tablets and fragments have been published in some form, but one-third hasn't yet. It's a lot of, of material, uh, not to speak of collections like the British Museum or the Baghdad Museum or the Museum in Istanbul. There are much larger uh, numbers of texts remain unpublished, so this needs to be done. And then, I mean, you need to have people who ask interesting, intelligent questions and, and contextualize these materials. Again, I, I pointed out we have lots of these oil inscriptions. I ta didn't talk that much about these, these, these letters, Neo-Syrian letters, which tell us so much about what goes wrong in the Assyrian Empire. The royal inscription tell us, oh, this is great. The Assyrian kings say, oh, we, uh, we won this battle. I built this temple. Everything is great. The letters is when administrators and spies and internal informers talk about rebellions in the periphery and insurgencies, even at home. I mean, we didn't talk about Asahadon in the year 671 when he conquers Egypt. That very late year, letters tell us there were two major insurgencies against him in the Syrian cities. So we get all this information, and this material is still not sufficiently um, discussed. There are no commentaries, for example, in the classicists when you when you have when you work with with classical texts. I mean, you have you have lots of, of of modern commentaries on these texts that try to contextualize them in all sorts of ways. This is all lacking. So um, while uh, there are very few scholars in my field, there's still a lot that needs to be done, and 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 um, so uh, research is ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's super important for understanding, you know, for archaeology, for for anthropology, for for just understanding various civilizations. And I'm sure as our technology gets better, it's also very can be very helpful as well. Um, and thankfully, uh, you know, that you, you've been able to get back there and it seems like it's not as conflictual as it was, you know, six, seven years ago. So that's probably a good thing. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting stuff because I, I feel like understanding more about our, you know, ancient civilizations, we just learn more about us as humans and how we've done things and can learn things. And I think it's important. Um, the book is called Assyria, the rise and fall of the world's first empire. It's fantastic. Um, where can everybody find the book and where can everybody find yourself? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's coming out in April 2023. 
uh, with basic books. And well, I mean, you can probably order it online, but you can also find it, I hope, at least in some decent bookshops. Um, so it is an attempt on my part to um, write in a way that is a little more accessible than, well, what scholars usually do. Of course, many of, of uh, what we write, much of what we write is is, is extremely technical. This book uh, is an attempt to make the world of Assyria accessible to a broader audience. And yes, I agree with you. I think um, Assyria does tell us something about ourselves and where we come from and how what still relevant to us today actually emerged. It also, I think, um, may help people um, gain a more complex idea about the history of the ancient world. I mentioned the uh, strange changes and shifts in Assyrian politics from a pretty sort of democratic and mixed constitution to a more autocratic one. So I think something most people wouldn't expect. It talks about climate change and pandemics as important factors in driving history, uh, another factor, of another uh, important issue for our own time. So I hope those would be would be reasons for some people to, to be interested in the book. Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, I, I can't uh, say enough thanks for, for coming on. This was such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm sure listeners will as well. So it's a big, big thanks for you and all of your, your time and your energy and your wealth of knowledge. So it's much yeah, thank appreciated. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And it was fun to talk to you too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you.